Hi, welcome to episode 41 of Paranormal Blip. Um, thank you ever so much for joining me again. Lovely to speak to you again. Thank you ever so much. Now, we have got an incredible show because, at long last, the UAP report has been released. So we're going to be looking at that. We're also going to be looking at some very interesting slides that were released by Arrow, which is nice, isn't it? Yes, we're going to be looking at that as well. And also, we've got a very interesting news section, which features a fascinating conversation with uh, Dr. Gary Nolan. And we're going to wrap things up with a little bit of spinchula. Now, first of all, I've, I've laid out my stall. I didn't do that last week. I usually do, but I didn't do that last week. But now I've laid out my stall. I need to say thank you ever so much to everybody that has been sharing the podcast. And um, I did ask you to do that. And you have been doing that, it seems. So thank you ever so much. Um, it's much appreciated. Um, so if you do like this kind of thing, then please do share it. Uh, <laughs> and it's working. Amazingly, it's working. So it's very exciting. And of course, also, if you want to support me, um, thinking, oh, that that guy, he's so good, isn't he? Yeah. What can I do? Well, what you can do is you can give me uh, five stars, please, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, and probably other things as well, but Apple and, and Spotify are the big ones. Also, thank you so much, Canada. Massive. I called out Canada. I said, oh, thanks, Canada, the other day. Hello, Canada, I said. And, God, Canada went wild. Like, people are sharing it in Canada. Very exciting. So get it in the hands of um, Jay Chill. If you're in, um, you know, Toronto, where Jay Chill from Film Junk, which is the best of all the podcasts, by the way. I think I've mentioned that a few times, haven't I? Yeah. And I think that Frank wouldn't like it, but I'd love Frank. Frank's my favourite. But Jay would probably listen, you know, 10 minutes. Probably listen to two minutes, 25 seconds and cut it off right there. Anyway, so um, we're going to go into the news. And then after the news, um, our main section. And then, like I say, we're going to wrap up with the spine chiller story. And if you want to follow me, then on Twitter, it's at Paranormal Blip. And on uh, Instagram, it's paranormal underscore blip underscore underscore podcast. <laughs> and after a small um, couple of days of trying to do stuff on Instagram, again, now I've fallen back and done nothing for ages. So sorry about that, Instagrammers. Anyway, here's the blomps. So before we get to the news, I want to just give a call out to a call out, shout out to um, Merged, which is the new podcast. It's quite a good name for a podcast, isn't it? Although it's not as good as Need to Know, which is the best name, because it comes up in conversation a lot. I mean, Paranormal Blip is the worst name because it never comes up in conversation. Those two words have never been put together again which I guess does make it searchable, but it certainly doesn't make it kind of, you know, this constant reminder. I mean, you know, 
constantly I'm reminded of need to know because people are constantly telling me that they need to know things all the time, you know. But nevertheless, Merged is the new podcast by Ryan Graves. And as we probably know in the kind of, you know, world of um, the UFO world, Ryan Graves is uh, the former F-18 pilot who uh, had his own encounter with UAPs. And so I've got a link in the uh, episode description for Merged, mergedpodcast.com, I think it is, yeah. And um, guess who his first uh, guest is? is? This is launching this podcast in a couple of, well, I don't know, a couple of days, I guess, so sometime in January. It's not out yet, but his first guest is um, Gary. Unbelievably, it's Gary Nolan. I mean, that is pretty good, isn't it? Dr. Gary Nolan is your first guest. Pretty good. Now, uh, it reminded me of this other podcast episode that was absolutely brilliant. And I have no doubt in my mind that people are going to be talking about this episode of uh, UFO Thinker, uh, Frank over at UFO Thinker had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Gary Nolan uh, last week, and it's absolutely brilliant. I contacted Frank, and um, I asked if I could play a snippet of the podcast on, on my show tonight, and he was happy to let me do that. So thank you ever so much, Frank. Um, so now listen, the episode, the full episode of UFO Thinker, it's um, episode 108, um, is is in the episode description of my podcast here, yeah? And you need to listen to this, like it is a must listen, okay? So we're going to go into it a little bit now, where Dr. Gary Nolan is giving his thoughts on uh, Graham Hancock. And one of the reasons why it's such an interesting um, interview, by the way, is that Frank is like brilliant, you know? And he's asking these questions that you just don't get anybody asking apart from Frank. And his podcast is excellent. So, you know, follow Frank and listen to his podcast. And in particular, listen to episode 108. And um, But yeah, here's Dr. Nolan talking about Graham Hancock. Speaking of like uh, anomalies and, you know, picking out an anomaly and then going through that process to figure out what actually is going on there. Um, there are some pretty compelling objects and structures all around the world, which are pretty difficult to explain from the ancient past. And I'm, I'm, I'm not jump just to clarify, I'm not jumping to the classic leap of, okay, aliens built the pyramids here, but mm-hmm. I think it's, it's probably way more complicated than that. But have you ever considered using your material analysis tools on some of the interesting objects from like ancient Egypt, for example? I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't need to. I've got plenty of stuff to do. But I mean, if you're talking about some of Graham Hancock's stuff, I mean, I find his ideas fascinating. I really do. I, mean, I've, I've no, I have no archaeologic expertise, but he pieces together a very interesting story. I find more interesting the archaeologist community's response to him, um, and and so negative. Uh, towards him um, that I, to me, I sort of feel like it's a cult versus a heretic. He's definitely a heretic, but um, 
I don't always consider heretics to be wrong. So, you know, I think there's some explanations needed that deeper explanations. I think I saw something on Twitter where somebody was because Graham had wanted access to an American Indian burial mound site, or I don't know if he wanted access or the, the ability to film or something. And the letter from the whoever the governmental or governing authority said, well, it's a sacred site. That's fine. It is. Got to respect that. But we don't want you. Um, we don't want you coming up with ideas that are against what the the sacred traditions are. And I found that unusual. You know, it's like, why are you not allowed to even speculate about something else? That's like, you know, you know, in, in the Vatican in the 1600s and you said something and you get, you know, now you're a heretic and you're, you know, you're tortured or put in jail or something. I don't, I don't quite understand that, but, you know, I, I understand how people don't want their religious beliefs questioned, but um, I never saw anything that Graham is doing that was anything more than speculation and trying to come up with a thread that explained all of these different observations. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, but absent a time machine or somebody going in and doing, you know, better analyses on the cores uh, from some of these diggings, you know, the kind of cores you can get, mm -hmm. uh, and, and other archeologists being involved and not dismissing what he's saying, uh, immediately before they even start, uh, then, um, you know, I, I think his speculation is just as good as some of the other things that people have claimed mainstream. Because it's, it's a speculation. See, there's a, there's a difference between speculation where you have some credible path to understanding it versus things where somebody say, the moment they see something, oh, it's searchlights. And that's the end of it. But you, you can't say credibly, oh, it's searchlights, unless you provide a credible path for how those searchlights got there. Hmm. You can't say it's space trash without saying how, you know, what is your proof, any proof that it might be space trash. You might just as well say it's flying elephants, right? I mean, you have to have, uh, you know, science speculation isn't completely open-ended you can't claim it's anything there has to be some narrow set of criteria by which you can come to a particular conclusion or speculation not, not even a conclusion um and so uh that's where i have problems with some of the skeptics that they just immediately within 10 minutes of seeing something that comes online they say oh it's a you know it's a seagull without any you know, further analysis or having been proven that they're wrong, still go back to the, you know, having, you know, said, Oh, it's a seagull or something stupid like that. Yeah. So it's all about coming at things without that 
predetermined kind of decision already made before you start right. looking into things, isn't it? Right. So that's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And um, thank you again to Frank for um, allowing me to play that snippet on the uh, on the podcast here. So now what it reminded me of was the extraordinary um, article that came out in The Guardian, no less, in in the United Kingdom. Uh, the, um, you know, 23rd of November this was. I've got it on my screen there. And it's essentially, it's a review of Ancient Apocalypse, which is Graham Hancock's recent show on Netflix, okay? And it's it's written by the reviewer, like the TV reviewer, this guy called Stuart Heritage. And Stuart Heritage is the kind of um, journalist that, you know, is... If somebody has to do like a kind of ridiculous Christmas piece about, you know, what's your favorite Christmas jumper or can you eat every, um, you know, like profiterole, um, (laughs) profiterole um, cake. (laughs) Does that exist? God, that sounds delicious, doesn't it? Uh, You know, like kind of puff piece stuff. And he's not, you know, kind of, I mean, Clive James used to be the TV reporter for The Observer for years, you know, and Clive, I disagree with Clive James in some of his, um, like, iconoclastic thoughts <laughs> towards the end of his life. But there's no question about it. You know, Clive James was a, was a pretty kind of heavyweight intellectual, you know, and an outstanding writer. Well, Stuart Heritage isn't that, you know, and Stuart Heritage isn't even the guy that writes um, screen wipe. What's his name? Charlie Brooker, you know. Um, so, you know, it's a bit weird that Stuart Heritage um, writes this kind of takedown of Graham. And so he, this is the title, right? Ancient Apocalypse is the most dangerous show on Netflix. I mean, that's quite an astonishing title. And basically, he's worked out that um, uh, Hancock's son works for Netflix. So because of that, he thinks that it's just like this kind of inside job, if you like, that Netflix is basically kind of, you know, beholden to Graham Hancock because his son works for them. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not sure whether that kind of carries much water but even so even if there is a kind of nepotism angle there uh you look at the guy on what it is that he's trying to deliver yeah and it's just this it's just a total takedown it doesn't go into any detail about any of the um cases any of the sites that hancock talks about in the show it's just like the most you know ridiculous um broad brush attack um and it's just yeah it's a joke it's exactly the kind of thing that uh, gary nolan is talking about yeah but from a media perspective i'm going to be talking about the media in relation to the um uap report as well in a minute but i thought it was quite interesting to um to kind of add that you know the media not only the scientific community but in places like the guardian where you'd expect you know the kind of british listeners would probably more or less agree with me that you'd expect you know it's not a tabloid you know what i mean not a tabloid 
but you'd expect a slight kind of bit of, you know, fairness or whatever. But um, or at least not even fairness, because you know the Guardian takes political positions. But at least a certain amount of, um, uh, you know, depth and integrity in what they're writing about, you know. So they've got like, for instance, it says, uh, which isn't, this is the kind of the bit in the, you know, when you're writing an argument, you've got to kind of say, well, maybe it's not a load of old rubbish what I'm writing. What about if it's true? <laughs> so, so at one point, Stuart writes, which isn't to say we should dismiss Hancock's theory out of hand, of course, because if he's right, then the history of humanity really is just the first five minutes of Prometheus. Good joke. It would change everything we know about ourselves. But we certainly shouldn't treat his hodgepodge of mysteries and coincidences as fact. He doesn't lay out what these mysteries and coincidences are. Um, and But he does say, you know, if he's right, then everything changes. You'd kind of think you'd spend a little bit more time on taking the kind of possibility that him being right is, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, what what's the um, weight of evidence for that? And of course, we now know this was written in November. I mean, the the amount of evidence that's coming out on a weekly basis, you know, th th this case and that case and this report and that report. And it's something to look back, look on you know, in the next couple of weeks and months. Maybe I should do a little bit on that, eh? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? A little bit. So anyway, there's the news. And here are the lumps. So the um, UAP report is out at last. And it's uh, linked in the episode description, as you would uh, imagine that I would do that, that kind of thing, wouldn't I? Yeah. So, well, in a in a nutshell, it runs to eleven pages, including the appendix. It doesn't say much, whereas there were previously one hundred and forty-four UAP reports covered during the seventeen years of UAP reporting, including the first one. Um, there have been two hundred and forty-seven more during the. 17 months since, combined with another 119 reports um, da, 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 that felt that we found somewhere. Um, a total of 510 UAP reports are currently catalogued. Okie dokie, so that's exciting, isn't it? 510, yes, quite a lot, really, isn't it? In the big scheme of things. Although, of course, we know now that these are. You know, nothing to do with civilian reports of UAPs. It's all to do with multi-sensory courts, um, military reports, okay? So they've set up this kind of funneling system whereby no matter where you are in the Department of, of Defense in the United States, you've got a way of funneling your report, you know, through your with, with the Navy or wherever you are, uh, into Arrow, okay? But it's a newly established office, and quite a lot of the report is basically saying, yeah, we're, we've set this up now, so now we're going to wait for the wait for the kind of goodies to arrive. And the goodies are arriving, but we're not getting any information about the goodies at all. And so my thing about this is that they have written this um, with a 
a keen knowledge that they have to uh, smother everything with a set, uh, very limited parameter of language. They don't want to say anything that's going to cause a stir. They don't want to say anything that's going to cause news. They are trying to underplay every single thing. And it's incredibly well written in that they take the drama out of the most dramatic story imaginable. The most dramatic story possible is happening and we're living through it, yeah? And there's a good chance that you yourself have been affected by it if you're listening to this, you know? Um, <laughs> and yet the official reports, at least the unclassified version, they have gone out of their way to sculpt every word to uh, make sure that it doesn't make an impact. Yep. It's designed to be dull. It's designed to be forgettable. It's designed not to make news. Uh, and of course it has made news because it's coming out of the Department of Defense in the United States of America. So it's made you news in the BBC and, uh, you know, everywhere else you'd expect it to make news. You know, it's made news uh, across the world. Um, but I'm not the only one to pick up on the kind of ridiculousness of the language. This is a statement by Christopher Mellon, who, uh, and I include this in the episode description as well. The government again demonstrated its unique and uncanny ability to transform an inherently fascinating topic into vexing bureaucratic jargon. If the intent was to make the report as anodyne, unremarkable and boring as possible, the authors did exceptionally well. I say this partly in jest, but in truth it appears efforts were made to minimise the impact of the data. For example, there's an incredibly stark contrast between the stunning testimony of UAP capabilities reported by Navy pilots, e.g., quote, something not from this earth, and the flaccid UAP report language, which by contrast asserts, quote, some of these uncharacterized UAP appear to have demonstrated unusual flight characteristics or performance capabilities and require further analysis. So, and he goes on to say, and actually, actually as um, Ross Coulter pointed out, you know, the number one rule in journalism is to, um, you know, you can't bury the lead. And he gets <laughs> literally the last, the, the second last sentence on um, Christopher Mellon's little blog here is, indeed, I've spoken with several credible people who claim the US has evidence of alien technology in its possession. Well, <laughs> put that at the top then, why don't you? But I absolutely agree with Mr. Bellum. It's, um, you know, that, that that's the whole, the whole kind of thing that they've tried to do here, is that they've tried to just take the drama out of it. Okay? And of course it really matters, because I know we live in a world of Snapchat and TikTok, and Instagram, you know, I know that. But the thing is, certainly in Britain, and I don't, I can't speak for the for the states, where from an outsider, I think that probably cable news makes the running in terms of is the kind of um, the kind of underpinning media uh, conversation comes from cable news. Perhaps I don't know, 
but certainly in Britain, it's the newspapers. Okay, the BBC, um, the major BBC news outlets, like all of the major broadcasts, all look to the newspapers for their content, essentially, and for kind of what's important to readers and you know listeners and and viewers. Yeah. And now, of course, we know that print, um, you know, newspapers aren't selling, basically. They haven't been selling for a good while now. And so we also think that there's probably that kind of uh, grip that people like Murdoch have had on the uh, UK electorate is loosening slightly, yeah? But only slightly, because they still make the weather, you know? And it is true that... People are, whatever, like, you know, getting their news from multiple sources. And, of course, everybody is uh, far more multifaceted and they contain multitudes and they're all universes. And, you know, they make decisions based on a whole wide range of experiences. Um, Having said that, the tabloids are still incredibly powerful in the UK. Yep. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I kind of was so surprised. And the tablo- and, and then you've got also, you know, the, the broadsheets that are seen as being more um, kind of sophisticated. But, um, you know, essentially, the, the, what is interesting in terms of politic, political reporting is that what uh, something that has changed, actually, in the last couple of years is a real desire to get the story. So it doesn't matter if you're a kind of right-leaning paper, for instance. If you've got a story, then you want the main thing is to get the story, yeah? And even if it means that you're going to go against a right-leaning, like, you know, the Tory government is right-leaning, the number of uh, big stories that came out of the Telegraph against Boris Johnson was quite surprising, really, because Boris Johnson came from the Telegraph and was, you know, wrote from them, wrote for them, and his big pals with all of the old Telegraph boys, you know. But even so, because the, it's a very competitive uh, industry, you do have a kind of competitiveness in terms of the, the political reporting, you know. Um, when it comes to UAPs, nothing. We've got a couple of reports, you know, in some newspapers over here. And you've also got that trickle of reports in the Sun and the Star and some excellent work done by... Uh, you know, UK-based journalists getting those papers, uh, getting those uh, papers to take those reports. Uh, but as long as you know, it's it continues like the the UAP experience uh, uh, stories continue just in the tabloids. Well, that's kind of where the like power structures in the UK are happy for those stories to be. Yeah. Because it doesn't make the news. You know, I mean, it's in a newspaper, but it's not making the news. It's just what you'd expect to read in a tabloid. You'd expect to read in a tabloid something about UFOs. You don't expect to read something about UFOs in The Guardian or The Times or The Telegraph, you know. And until that happens, and they have done it in the last couple of years, but not often. And until that happens, there's going to be no sense of a public appetite who, you know, I'm not talking about the UFO people who all revere, you know, Jack Vallée and everyone else. 
Um, of course, Jacques Vallée isn't known. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Nobody knows Jacques Vallée. Nobody knows uh, Gary Nolan. Nobody knows Lou Elizondo. You know, I'm talking about the kind of mainstream, um, you know, population, you know. And until that happens, there is not going to be a peep out of the UK government, even though, and here's the the Radio 2-like um, uh, segue, even though we know from the Arrow slides um, that the UK is... Uh, you know, kind of being shared information by by um, the U.S., the United States. Arrow basically confirming in the slides that they're working with their um, kind of international partners. And we've got that kind of Five Eyes thing, haven't we? Canada, who is it? Canada, hey, big up Canada. Australia, love you Australia, by the way. We need more Australian listeners. You know, interestingly, just a side thing, uh, the UK and, and the US are constantly vying for number one, okay? The vast majority of my listeners come from either the UK or the US, and then underneath that, it's, it's Canada or Australia, okay, constantly vying for the third spot. It's very exciting. It's like, um, you know, the Premier League or something. So, um, but at the moment, Canada is sharing the heck out of this podcast so come on australia pull your socks up pull your socks up will ya but um anyway so we've got this arrow uh uh slides coming out and it talks about um you know working with their uh their colleagues across the water and it's really they've they've really gone to work in terms of designing the heck out of this thing like it looks like a, um, you know, a Ridley Scott film. This <laughs> it's beautifully designed. I mean, a bit overdone, really, with you know, kind of like schematics of, um, of aircraft and, you know, cockpits and all kinds of things. But anyway, it talks about the the necessity to encourage reporting. And how, you know, you're not going to be stigmatized anymore. It talks about the difficulty of, um, you know, the threat, essentially, of, um, you know, kind of crashes happening. Um, it talks about, there's a very interesting bit about the um, the phenomenon, about the phenomenon. So it lists what kind of information would be necessary and sufficient for UAP analysis about the phenomenon. UAP event description and narrative. UAP location relative to the observer with as much precision as practicable, number of UAP objects observed during the phenomenon, and indications of intra-UAP object coordination and or communication. That's good, isn't it? Are they talking to each other, basically? The UAP, multiple UAPs. Indications of advanced and or enigmatic capabilities. Oh, very poetic. She had enigmatic capabilities. UAP characteristics including physical state, e.g. solid, liquid, gas, plasma. Description, e.g. size, shape, color, signatures, propulsion, means, payload. UAP performance envelope, including altitude and or depth, travel, path, and trajectory, velocity, maneuverability. Maneuverability. <laughs> 
UAP behavior, including whether under apparent intelligent control, apparent response to observation and or observer presence, and apparent indications of indifference or hostility. And Arrow, it's very interestingly, Arrow is um, all domain anomaly resolution office, okay? Because all domain means we're talking about um, craft that uh, are in space, craft that are in the air, craft that are under sea, and there's been talk of craft uh, penetrating solids as well. So intriguingly, there's a uh, Latin phrase just outside, on the kind of outside rim of the uh, arrow logo. I mean, you can't have an inside rim, can you? Because the rim implies that it's on the outside, doesn't it? The rim is the edge, you know. You can't have an inside edge. Anyway, um, and the Latin logo, when you somebody has translated it, not me, but apparently it translates to the universe is changing, our life is what our thoughts make it. And that's from a book called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, the old Roman meditator. And that book was, by the way, that was his kind of like little uh, notebook that he wrote for himself whilst he was meditating, yeah? And it's like filled with little, you know, what what they called uh, aphorisms. Is that the right word? Maybe it is. You know, little kind of, you know, the, the little book of wisdom type thoughts. And just like, you know, what, what he was kind of coming, what was coming to mind while he was, um, you know, in the zone. Yeah. It sounds like that big time, doesn't it? The universe is changing. Our life is what our thoughts make it. Yeah. But um, of course, you know, in the world of consciousness study and um, the phenomenon, you th immediately think of the stories of people who, you know, like, for instance, um, near-death experiences or people that can access a kind of wider realm, a greater realm of knowledge um, beyond this realm. And they come back and they say, cool, you never believe it. I met some beings up there who were able to essentially manifest like physical anythings just by thinking about it, you know? And we also, of course, have the ongoing rumors of the way that you contact, the way that you um, communicate with and operate craft is not you, well, maybe you, uh, depends who's listening, <laughs> but probably not you. Um, but, you know, one, the way that one operates, not the queen or the king. Does he, does he call himself one? He is a bloody one, that guy, isn't he? Um, the way you operate the craft is by thinking, yeah, telepathy. Like, think up and it goes up. Think down and it goes down, that kind of thing, yeah? So our life is what our thoughts make it. Yeah, beautiful. But a little bit of a, um, oh, God, I can't remember the word. That What's the word they use? in a, um, you know, a, not a, you know, like a hidden thing in a, in a film or something or in a computer game, whatever that is. It's a little bit of one of those. <laughs> anyway, that is, I think you'll agree, that is a totally comprehensive look at the UAP report and narrow slides.
The arrow slides, by the way, were obtained by D. Dean Johnson. And uh, yesterday, I think it was, he tweeted arrow director Sean Kirkpatrick, PhD, yesterday, 1st of the 11th, 23, which is the American way of saying the 11th of January, presented to the Transportation Research Board, National Academy of Engineering, on Arrow's UAP mission and civil aviation. I obtained slides that he used. See link, but no video. So I'm going to post that up onto the um, episode description as well. So thank you, D. Dean, D. Dean Johnson. And um, obviously, if you go to that link, you might as well follow Mr. Johnson as well. So, um, yeah, absolutely extraordinary um, reporting. So thank you very much, Mr. Johnson. So now here's another reading from Spine Chiller. And I've had um, a couple of people get in contact with me and ask for information about where you can buy Spine Chiller which uh, seems quite convoluted way of doing it because all you need to do is just Google it. But nevertheless, I have put in the episode description, Amazon, uh, Amazon, where you can buy second-hand copies of Spinechilla. And um, my um, parents made this uh, beautiful, published this beautiful copy of Spinechilla that I've got in my hand in 1990, okay? 1990. It's out of print now, but there's second-hand versions. And this is the black version, the black paperback with red uh, lettering, quite kind of like uh, spiky lettering on the front. And their names are Peter and Mary Harrison, my parents. And now then later on in his life, I think it was around about maybe 2013, something like that, my dad republished it under the name Paranormal Spine Chiller, which you can also find second-hand. It's also out of print, but you can there's like copies going around. But that's much more expensive, so I wouldn't bother with that. It's exactly the same um, text, obviously. Um, but it also looks a lot uglier than the black version with the, uh, with the red writing. So anyway, if you're interested, then... Um, you know, by all means, get it. I, of course, don't make any money out of it because I'm not the people that own it. I don't own, well, I do own this copy, but I'm not selling this. <laughs> anyway, um, right, here we go. This is page 106. <clears throat> I did, by the way, just for full disclosure, I actually was just like looking through, flicking through, thinking, oh, should I read this one? I flicked through. There is there is one page, one story, right? Oh, my God. I'm not going to read it out because it's too scary. Like, genuinely, I might read it out in the future, but I'm definitely not reading it out now because it's about 11 o'clock now and everyone's asleep apart from me. And uh, it's near the time when the when the warlocks come out, you know? So there's no way I'm reading it out. But anyway, that's page 159. It's the really scary one. which starts the small industrial town of St. Helens which doesn't give much away, but anyway, that's that one. So if you have a copy of Spinechiller, do you remember the librarian that I spoke about ages ago? She was a proper, um, she loved my parents' books, didn't she? She had the children that time forgot. She had mystic forces. So she's probably got Spinechiller. Librarian, if you're listening, tell us, what do you think of um, 
the story on page 159. Far too scary for me to read. Definitely at night time. Maybe I'll have to read it during the day at some point and get it down in audio form. Anyway, this is 106. This is quite nice, this one. Like, it's not really scary, but it's intriguing, you know, but not very scary. When Stuart Redder of Lincolnshire was quite young, he used to sing in the church choir and ring the church bells. An elderly lady lived in the town and looked, where's, oh, that's Lincolnshire. That's not Lincolnshire, is it? I'll tell it. I don't know, Lincolnshire. An elderly lady lived in the town and looked after dogs and cats for people on holiday and did little gardening jobs. She was quite eccentric, but a very lovable and kind person. Every Christmas, without fail, she used to send a box of fruit comes to us, and we always sent her a Christmas card. She always signed her name, Winifred Francis, but we had to put Miss Francis on our cards by order of our parents. My younger sister was born later, after our choir and bell-ringing days, had been replaced by work and teenage occupations, so she only knew Miss Frances by sight. I'd started work, and my younger sister, Elaine, had moved from the infant school to the junior one, about five minutes from where I worked, for the council cutting grass around the caravan site. (laughs) On Fridays, I always had to leave at 3.45pm, instead of 4pm, to go to the council yard and line up for my wages. If I was late, I had to do without my wages until the following Monday morning. Bloody hell, that's a bit rough, pal. This system, of course, changed when local government came into being. Okay, we don't have a date here, but I have no idea when that would have been. Like, um, at least the 60s. Yeah? Um, on one particular Friday, it was a bit pushed for time when the grass cut it, with the grass cutting and was working to a very fine timetable. I had only the roadside verges to cut in front of the caravan camp before finishing. It was about 3.30pm when I had just about finished. I saw Miss Frances coming down the road from where she lived. I hated not being able to stop to talk to her. You see, it was not easy to have a quick conversation with her, as she tended to talk and talk. I just waved up to her, and she waved back, and I finished cutting the grass. I put the grass cutter away and locked the shed and then got on my push bike to go for my wages. By then the kiddies were out of school and going home. When I eventually got home I mentioned seeing Miss Frances. My sister told me that she had also seen Miss Frances who'd been pushing her pram and that the old woman had said, Hello Elaine. Elaine told me that the old woman had been walking up the road by the side of her school. I remarked that I didn't think that Miss Frances knew Elaine to speak to. My sister replied, well, she said hello, Elaine. Before I go any further, I must explain that there is no way in this world that Miss Frances could ever be mistaken for anyone else. Winter and summer, she had on an old gabardine raincoat tied to the waist with string. She had fuzzy, bushy ginger hair and always wore old plimsoll-type footwear in all seasons. She wore thick knitted sort of stockings and she always pushed an old pram around with either gardening tools in it or sheep's heads which she would collect from the butcher's shop. <laughs> On the f- a bit eccentric. On the following Monday, welcome to Britain. <laughs> 
On the following Monday, some local men came to work at the camp. One of them, who I'd worked with before, said, Bad job about Miss Frances, wasn't it? I asked him what he meant, and he replied, They found her dead in her bungalow. I was very upset about this, and I wished so much that I'd stopped work on the Friday for a few moments to bid her the time of day. On the way home from work that evening, I called at the church's, the church parson's house, as I knew that Miss Frances had no surviving relatives. I asked him when the funeral was to turn the page, take place, thinking that just in case no one turned up, at least we could be there. He told me that she was to be cremated at Grimsby, which was about 30 miles away, but they would be holding a special service for her two days later on the Wednesday. On that day, our family went along to the service. I must admit that I was a bit surprised to find that the church was full. Before the service, I managed to have a word with the person, the parson, to thank him for telling me about the service. Just as I was about to walk away from him, I remarked that I was still quite shocked that I'd only just seen her the previous Friday afternoon. He just looked at me in a funny sort of way and said, Oh, did you? The next day I was talking to the men at work about the service. I remember saying to the man who told me the news about Miss Frances' death that the parson gave me such a funny look when I told him that I'd only just seen her the Friday afternoon. I got another funny look from my workmate, who answered, I'm not surprised. It was Friday morning when they found her dead. The dogs had been barking so much and the milk had not been taken in. Just to, for context, uh, in the days of milkmen, milkmen would bring round the milk and leave the uh, glass bottles of milk, pints of milk, on the doorstep. So the milk had not been taken in means that Miss Frances had not opened the door and taken the milk in from the doorstep. Uh, okay, that's the context bit over with. <laughs> and I've lost my place now. Bloody context bit getting in the way. Is my place. Oh yeah, the milk had not been taken in, so the police had broken into her bungalow. They reckoned she'd been dead for about two days. I went cold when he told me this but I did not elaborate on my seeing Miss Frances, as he was one of those people who would have laughed at me. There was no mistake, though. I definitely saw Miss Frances, and we waved to each other, and about five minutes later, the time it would take to walk from the camp to the junior school, my sister had seen her, and the old woman had said hello Elaine to her. Something else came to light just as strange, a very long time afterwards. Quite by chance, someone told me that when Miss Frances had been a young girl, she had lived with her parents in one of the big posh houses on the road which ran up to the side of the junior school. I've often wondered what would have happened if I had taken the time to speak to her that Friday afternoon. Uh -huh. That's good, isn't it? What's the? Am I missing something about that? <laughs> Why do they mention the um, the big posh house? Or maybe because it's to do with the junior school. Maybe it's some kind of implies, not to criticise my mum, but who wrote this, but maybe that implies that the spirit or whatever, the ghost was going from one house to the other, yeah? Must imply that. Anyway, that's Spanchella. <laughs> Hello.
So it only is beholden for me to say thank you ever so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please do share the podcast with your friends and neighbours and your aunties and your uncles. And um, yeah, give us a rating as well on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen. That really helps the algorithm. It's what all podcasters say, but it really does make a big, big difference. So thank you ever so much for the five-star reviews so far. It's massively appreciated. Also, if you want to follow me and get in contact at um, Paranormal Blip on Twitter and Paranormal underscore Blip underscore podcast on Instagram, episode 42 is just around the corner. And see you later.